Welcome back to Recess, the unfiltered podcast for aspiring entrepreneurs. Yeah, today we had one of my good friends, Eddie, on. Um, he's someone I've known for a while. He works at a trading firm now, so he has a lot of experience around investing and personal finance. And so he dropped some really good gems, and he told us about his strategy on how he's going to retire by 30. Today's a really good episode. I think you really enjoy it. <laughs> I don't even know if I would have switched jobs if I was still in the burbs because the commute, not it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you work, you, I've only spoken to you once since you worked at your new firm, which is DFR, DFW, I forget what the DRW. DRW, okay. It's just the guy's initials. Like it's, I don't. <laughs> and it's a trading firm, right? Yeah. And you do risk analysis there? Yeah. Risk analysts, I uh, build tools for the risk managers who basically are just like the people who are overseeing the desks and making sure that they're not putting on too much at a certain time. Gotcha. Interesting. So you have a tool that like you can put your portfolio or their portfolio into and they say, all right, we have this this level of like risk in this area because we're too, we have too much, I don't know, renewables or something else. Well, yeah, kind of. It's like... um the risk managers, there's like six of them, and then we have like 40 desks, um, and each desk is like product-specific and strategy-specific, so you might even have like two desks in the oil space. One of them is market-making, the other one's like trying to trade based on events or opportunities. The risk managers will basically, they'll kind of be like the final stop where it's like, okay, it looks like you can lose this much today. Uh, have either of you learned about like VAR or CVAR or heard of any of that stuff? No, I haven't. Okay, it's a, it stands for value at risk. And so it's like, if you can either do historical simulations, you can do like Monte Carlo simulations, and then you can see on any given day, you have a 5% chance of losing a million dollars or more. Or if you, you know, if you have an, an extreme event, like a black swan event, like COVID or, you know, like Russia, Ukraine or anything like that, if, you know, you get to your worst case scenarios, you would lose on average $5 million or something. And so they have kind of limits that they set. So each risk manager will work with the desk and say, okay, at any given time, you can lose $5 million on a day. But if it looks like you're going to be losing more, like if it looks like you have the potential to lose more, then we have to adjust the positions. So that's what they do. And that can build tools for them to like make that easier. So some of the things are like keeping track of all the exposure around, uh, around the firm. Some of the other things are like you have, I don't know, like hundreds of different oil products, but at the end of the day, you can like boil them down into 10 different things. And so it's like building tools to decompose all of these products and then restructure them back into just those simple legs. That's such amazing. Solely on public markets or do you trade like other assets as well? It would trade everything. Like um, we trade in the public markets. Uh, we do a lot of like OTC, like over-the-counter type trading, where it's just like direct deals. There's no exchange. And then we also do like physical commodities. So like buying molecules of gas and then moving them from West Texas to Oklahoma or Oklahoma to Chicago or something like that. That's interesting. Interesting. So, so Eddie, I'm actually interested. You took a, a less traditional path in terms of your career compared to a lot of people who come out of U of I. I know you started off with your Accenture offer, but from there you kind of transitioned over to like Tasty Trade and then now here. What's kind of your story from how did you decide to make the decisions you did in terms of your career from like the beginning of college? That's a, <laughs> what's my story? That's a good question. Uh, I started college. I'll keep it. I'll try to keep it brief, but I started college. That's how very much you are, honestly. Okay, cool. Well, I started, I came in uh, thinking I'm going to study like finance or accounting because that's just 
what people did. Like my sister went to business school. My dad went to business school back in Croatia. So I was like, well, okay, I'll study business. I don't know anything else. Then I got interested in computer science. I took my first computer science class. I'd like never programmed before college and was like instantly hooked. So basically for the rest of college, I was taking like one CS class, one finance class every semester just to continue to learn and develop the skills. I thought product management would be cool. So I did that one summer at E-Trade because I still was interested in trading and like investing in the markets, but also wanted that more like technical. Did product management, was cool, but didn't love it because you kind of felt, you felt isolated. Like you felt a little separate because you weren't a part of the developers. You weren't part of the business side. You weren't part of like customer service, design. You were overseeing all of them, but not doing a lot of tangible work. So the next summer I wanted to do something more technical. So I went and did data science at Accenture, which was, which was fun, but it was almost a little too, like you're again, isolated. Like you're just working on what you're working on. I took a couple data science classes in college and those really like interested me for that. Um, so senior year, I started teaching at U of I in the mill, which you two might be familiar with. But I started teaching some classes. It's like a lab in the college of business where you could take free classes that you don't have to sign up for. And they're not like credits. It's just kind of for fun or to learn. So I started teaching classes on data science and then uh, options trading and investing that I was like, okay, I got two paths right here. I can either do the data science thing where I can go try to do something in trading. But U of I isn't really, when I was there, wasn't focused on that. I know now with some of the you know student organizations, there's a better focus towards trading. But when I was there, it wasn't the thing. So I was like, oh, I'll do data science. Senior year, I was thinking between data science, uh, Teach for America, or tech consulting. Decided tech consulting wasn't for me. Nothing against consulting. <laughs> Nothing against consulting. It just like wasn't the fit for me. Um, Teach for America would have been cool, but without, if I was allowed to teach in person, I think that would have been my decision, but it was like peak COVID at the time. And it was most likely looking like it was going to be virtual. I'm like, I don't want to try to teach a class of 12 year olds virtually. Like I props to all the teachers who do it. I just don't think I am suited for that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I talked, I was going to go Accenture full time and I started to get interested in finance careers again, like the second semester of my senior year, talked to my professor. And he was giving me some insights on the different career paths. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll keep that in the back of my head. Had a friend reach out like a month before I was supposed to start Accenture. He was like, you want to work at Tasty Trade? Do research. And it was like all the same skills I did at Accenture in regards to like data analysis and data science, but just instead of applying it to like finance, but like corporate finance, like internal type stuff, it was applying it to the markets and trying to figure out like optimal strategies, uh, you know, better ways to manage risk better ways to potentially trade and those type of things. I'm like, yeah, sign me up. So uh, did that. And then after about a year or so, I had a recruiter reach out about coming to a trading firm. I was definitely interested, but I really liked my job at Tasty. So I didn't necessarily want to leave. So I was like, I'll entertain. Talked with them a little bit. Um, they pretty they did a pretty good job selling it. <laughs> the recruiter was like talking about the perks, talking about the type of the things you'll learn, the opportunities at the firm and then afterwards. So I went through the interview process, met the entire team uh, and the, the managers, the directors, everyone, and they were sweet and, you know, gave me a pretty good idea of like, okay, you know, you can do risk for a couple of years and then you can either go more of a software engineering route. You can become more of a risk manager. You can move over to like quant stuff. You know, it opens a lot of doors. Uh, so I was like, okay, I'll do it. I have nothing. Like what's the, my worst case scenario at that point was I don't love it. And in a little bit, I can come back to tasty if that's really what I want to do. 
or it gives me an opportunity to do some kind of move to the next level. And so for me, trading was in the back of my head kind of since like early on in college, but I just didn't seem realistic. And all these like firms, when you apply to them on Handshake or LinkedIn, like they don't even give you, they don't even give you a callback, <laughs> let alone an interview. So then having the opportunity to interview and, you know, go through the process and get to start working was something that was like, I don't know, like a dream come true, not to sound like super corporate or anything like that. But in terms of like a job, it was a dream come true. Yeah. I think something that you didn't specifically touch on that's, I think, really interesting um, from my perspective was like all the little things you've done, like on the side, like on your path to get there. And I think some of those have been like probably really helpful into getting those, the jobs you're working at now, like you said, like. I think U of I doesn't have a direct pipeline into a lot of these careers, like especially the trading careers, at least when you were there. And so like these things you do on the side kind of helps you get there. Could you touch a little bit on those? Like I know one of them where you taught for the guy that does the Forex trading, you did like a, a course on options trading. Is that correct? Yeah. So I did. Yeah. There was like uh there were two, two courses I ended up doing senior year. I had a little time and again, I wanted to explore. I was getting more into that. I had met someone through again like a friend of a friend and he had he was working on he had a whole like up um, like forex and like currency exchange kind of trading platform that he had built out and he wanted to transition into like other derivatives so like move into like futures and options and that's like more of my expertise like i don't really know forex like that or currencies at now more so but back then it was like i only really knew options and futures and so he was like okay i'll commission you you build out all the material, you do the voice recordings. I have some animators, you kind of make mock-ups of the visuals and we'll have the animators actually do the right. And so I did that for a options on futures course. So it was kind of like you had your Forex over here. Those people were interested in that. You had people who were interested in options and there was no, you know, in the middle, there was nothing to fill the gap. So we made that course to kind of bring people from the Forex area teach them a little bit more about options and futures, and then move them over to just kind of entirely options. So I made a course for that. And then after that, that was pretty successful. Then I made the one that was specifically for options on like equities versus like options on Forex futures. Um, and that was, I think each of those were like two or three months projects that we worked on. Uh, the person had five or 600,000 followers and a couple thousand people who would like take these courses and uh, they would do trade ideas and all this other stuff, but I was just on the content side. Do you know some of the economics behind like that business that he was running? Like you were like a part of it, building the some of the courses, but do you know how the overall arching business kind of economics of that were? Like how they did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, um, <laughs> I think I know at some point in like 2020 and 2021, I think he was pulling in like 40 or 50k a month from these people from. The, the courses, which was absolutely like crazy to think about. I'm like, this guy is, he's basically like a marketing person and he just is really, really good at building these businesses and finding people to do a lot of the, the technical and more specific work. So it, it did pretty well. I'm not sure about now. I like haven't stayed in touch too, too much with them, but, uh, but as of last, it was like around there. I think that's a zero interest rate phenomenon. Or do you think that's something they can keep, keep up? Um, possibly zero interest rate phenomenon, but I think more so because of like the interest, not like, um, not the outsourcing and like getting people to work. I just think the general interest at that point, especially like 2020, 2021, like retail trading exploded because everyone at uh, YouTube have probably, I know, well, I know Jacob's dabbled in it. 
but <laughs> Rohan, I imagine you, I imagine you also did. Um, there was like, you had time, there wasn't as much to do, you know, markets were interesting. You could get in with a thousand dollars and start to play. And so I think a lot of people came across, I'm not sure now with how the market's been last year and just general people's fear of the economy. I'm not sure if they're in there as much, but there's always opportunity. Like people are always interested in how to make more money. Yeah. Where, where do you think that if you had to give your advice to people who are interested, maybe they're beginner investors right now, but they want to step it up just a little bit, maybe get into options, play around a little bit. What advice would you have for them getting started with that process and where would they actually go to learn? What do you think is the best way? So for getting started, there's like the two camps uh, where you have w one group of people will say you should paper trade because you don't want to put your money at risk. It's a good way to learn all the fundamentals and that type of stuff. The other group of people say paper trading lacks the emotional aspect because you're willing to, you know, you could be a little bit more mechanical with paper trading. Whereas when it comes to your real money, you might make decisions that aren't optimal. Um, it's like the whole idea of like when you play blackjack, there are like right things to do. There's like a book. If either of you yeah. have you played blackjack before? Yeah. Okay. So no more the casino. This like this went to Vegas and he's over here with like a piece of paper with like all the the rubles out, like rolling it out at the freaking table. And everybody's like, get this out of here. God, you know, they said it's allowed. That's how it is though. But but you know, there's like rules. It's like, okay, you have, you know, 16 dealers showing a nine. Do you hit? Do you stay? Like it's the same thing, but like when you're doing it in blackjack, you don't always make the right decision. A lot of times you're like I've, you know, like the dealer bust the past four times, like I'm going to just stay, like there's no reason to hit. Gambler's fallacy right there. Gambler's fallacy. And that's exactly, I think what happens with some people when it comes to like paper trading versus real money. It's like when it comes to real money, you're like not going to cut the losers. You're not going to do that stuff. So I'd say if you have enough money, put a little aside, just a couple, you know, well, a little is a, is a very relative term. So put, a, put like a few thousand dollars aside if you're, you know, whatever you're willing to lose. Uh, that's kind of your market tuition is what people call it. You know, that's any money you lose is just money that you learned with. So I would say do something like that. You can open up an account at, I'm not going to like shill any place, but you can open up an account at like Tasty Works, which I think they now rebranded to Tasty Trade. Um, but they have like the lowest options commissions. You can also do it. Like I like E-Trade's platform, uh, Thinkorswim through TD Ameritrade. Robinhood's fine. But like, if you're really trying to like learn, like it doesn't have the tools, it doesn't really have the analysis. Um, and like trying to putting on even mildly complex strategies is difficult in the UI. Great UI, got it. but very, very simple. So I'd say do that. And then for learning, Investopedia is great, which is like a, a kind of a freebie there. And then uh, again, kind of bias, tasty live. Like we do some of the research stuff. There's a lot of commentary, but the research stuff I think is really good. Um, but in Investopedia is probably the best but there are a couple of youtube channels that are also quite good um but it depends like there's different variations do you want to spend an hour a day doing this stuff do you want to spend an hour a week doing this stuff interesting so for me like when i use investopedia it's usually when i hear like some sort of finance term that i don't understand and i just use that to kind of look it up does investopedia or some other sources you know have like a step-by-step -step guide from search finish here's how you learn the technical analysis of trading options like where can you go if you're a complete beginner but you want this like proper course or path. Okay, so two two places for that. One of them, uh, again, just because it's like very <laughs> brush in my head and familiar is the like Tasty Trade, Tasty Live, like either on YouTube or on the website, they have courses uh, that are entirely free and take you from nothing to at least being able to trade like you know mildly complex strategies, nothing super crazy, but also a little bit more than just like buying a call, buying a put. 
Then there's also, there was a website that I use. I used to listen to their podcast when I first started. It was called uh, Option Alpha. And it's, he, he built out a really, a pretty impressive website. Um, I think his name's Kurt Duplessis, Duplessis. I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name, but he built out a pretty crazy website with a ton of information. And then he started to add like some backtesting stuff. But I think that's premium. So just for free information, those two places have nice courses. Yeah, so I want to touch a little bit on why you think maybe options and futures and stuff like that could be beneficial as someone that wants to, you know, be rich someday. But first, I, I want to touch a, more on what exactly is like your strategy now, and how do you how do you work like a job and also trade, and how do you allocate time for that, and like what's your overall strategy? So uh, there have been like two sides of this in terms of investing and trading in recent times. Prior to switching jobs last year, I was a much more active trader because it was part of the job that I was working previously. Like, yes, it was to do research, but they also wanted you to be active in the market so that you could, you pretty much knew what was going on at all times. So a lot of what I did then was looking at like high volatility stocks, um, stocks that have been kind of just bouncing around or heading lower, heading higher, whatever it is. And trying to then sell options on it somewhere's directional a lot of it was just like a taking advantage of volatility um, and time decay you get a like higher probability of profit with that type of stuff like you know you're gonna win 80 percent of the time but those also come with like really fat tails and that's just like the risk that you have on the downside or or the upside depending what you're selling so it's like if you you don't lose often but when you lose it can be pretty bad if you're not strict that was like my what i was doing previously uh, and even now I do a little bit of that, but with less time and I don't want to like during the workday, I'm not supposed to like be trading at this job. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I try to spend, I try to do a little bit more passive work. So a lot of what I look at are still like overbought or oversold stocks, you know, things have been running up for 20 days. It's like, okay, this is a little much or things have been selling off. It's down 75%, still a good company, not like some, some junk company, but still a good company. Just maybe beaten up a little too hard. Uh, a lot of what I do now with options is just pretty much like selling puts to, uh, they're like cash secured puts. So you have all the cash that you need to buy a hundred shares of the stock, but you don't want to necessarily own it right now. You can sell these puts. It still gives you like that bullish bias, but much less capital and, uh, you can kind of use it as income. So it either lowers your cost basis or if it just expires, you know, if, if the stock closes higher than where you sold the put. Then you just got to keep the money and you can just rinse and repeat. So I do that. Timeframes are like 45 to 60, 45 to 90 days, depending on what I'm doing. And then when you get assigned the, the stocks, you sell calls against them. Some people call it the wheel where you sell puts. Once you get assigned, you sell calls. Once you get assigned, you sell puts and you just kind of go through that. I'm not maybe as diligent with that. Like it's not a once a month I'm doing this, but on the names that I like or the names I'm looking at, that's what I'll do. And then I meet with some friends like once or twice a week just to discuss um some ideas and some thoughts so we talked we were talking about like dividends recently we were talking about uh, some energy stocks recently so that's right now i'm much more passive than i was but i'm still using options primarily for a capital efficiency and like a probability standpoint and then what's your long-term goal with this investment strategy is it like you want to retire is it you want to have like i don't know a hundred million dollars like what's the what's the end goal for you uh, financial independence there's this like youtube channel called two sides of phi these two dudes who are like 50 ish one of them is two or three years into retirement and the other one is two or three years out of retirement like away from retirement so it talks about the two of them and their perspectives and stuff and just like their life perspective has definitely 
changed my own my own perspective. So it's like as soon as I can get fin become financially independent, that's the goal. I always tell people I want to retire by thirty, but I don't mean like retire, feet up on the beach, like yeah. drinking a mai tai or something like that. Like <laughs> I want to, I just want to be financially independent. So when I'm thirty, I can choose to continue working corporate if I want. I can take a couple years off to help raise my kids at that time. Well, you know, uh, but I can help to raise my kids at that time. Um, you know, can help support friends, family, and or just like do other things I'm interested in. Yeah. Uh, where it's not like I have to go to this exact job. So what that number is, I'm not entirely sure. Probably a couple million dollars. But this is all in the goals, like the work, the career switching, and trading, and all this stuff is like all with that end goal of financial independence. Interesting. So you mentioned that there was that YouTube channel that kind of got you into this mindset and you learned things from them that kind of shaped your worldview. Is that like the FIRE acronym, financial, financially independent, retire early? What were some of the things that they said on the channel that really shaped your mindset of, compared to like the traditional thinking of retirement? Yes. Yeah, so the traditional thinking when they say like you're going to work until you're 59 and a half or 65 or whatever it is, um, I'd say that channel and then I'll reference another book. It's called Die With Zero. It's been like super popular in the FIRE community. It came out last fall. If either of you haven't read it or anyone listening hasn't read it, definitely recommend like 300 pages, pretty light read. But those two books talked about, okay, you work all your life and you wait until you're 65 to retire with your nest egg and go do all the things that you wanted to do. But by the time you make it there, you're old, <laughs> like obviously, but you don't have like the physical or mental sharpness that you did when you were 20 or 30. So you're, you, you know, you've been working all your life towards something that you can't even enjoy. Like you want to go skiing when you're 65, like maybe, but you're probably not going to be skiing. You're not going to be hiking these crazy 1400 tall mountains. Like it's just not going to happen. So those things were for me like very, very big. There's a couple ideas. One is like time buckets. So instead of making a, you know, a bucket list for the end of your life, where by the time I die, I want to do these 10 things. They talk about breaking your life into buckets or chunks. So between 20 and 35, I want to do these three things. Between 35 and 50, I want to do these five things. And you try to, you know, bucket these ideas based on how, like, what's my, you know, mental and physical well-being going to be? What's my financial well-being going to be? And what are my obligations going to be? When you're 25, you're probably not going to have a kid. You're probably not going to have, I mean, uh, you might, but most 25-year-olds <laughs> aren't going to have like a full-on family. You may not be a homeowner at that point. You really don't have many obligations other than yourself. So that's the time to do more of the traveling and more of like the extreme sport type of thing, if that's what you're interested in. When you're in your mid thirties, you know, you're getting started with a family. You don't have as much time to do that stuff. You change it. And then when you're 60, it's like, yeah, I can go on a cruise. If, if I want to go cruise to Alaska, like I can do that when I'm 65. I don't need to do that when I'm 25. That was one thing. And then the other thing was listening on the, the podcast or the show, like the YouTube channel, they talked a lot about just because we're retired doesn't mean that we're not doing anything. Like these guys are obviously still working on trying to create this. One of the guys works, does a little side consulting for some people, like maybe 10 hours a week. He and his wife will travel all the time. Like they'll spend time with their family and their kids and like they help their kids with life, you know, as these kids are adults versus like forcing your kids to take care of you at some point. Yeah. So uh, those are like a few simple things. So I think like ideally, that, that's awesome to hear. I think ideally a lot of people have the same idea. Like, oh, in, in a perfect world, I also want to retire at 30 and go be on the beach because I know that my bones will might not work when I'm 60, right? Um, so what are some of the, is it basically just a high risk, high reward lifestyle in terms of finances? Or what are some of the actual strategies that people in either this Reddit thread or some of these YouTube videos or the books, like what do people actually do 
to get that retirement by age 30? What, what's different about them that the rest of the world doesn't understand? So 30 is a bit extreme. I'll give you like a 35, maybe 40. That's more realistic. A lot of the people who are 30, uh, most of the people that you like read about or see online who are retired at the age of 30 got into tech companies, either like startups or something like that, where they had their own company, sold it off, pocketed five or 10 million and are like dusting their hands off, calling it quits. That's pretty unlikely. Um, and that's a super high risk thing. Like if you, know, if you think about entrepreneurship and um, even if you're working for another startup, like it's relatively high risk in most people's eyes. We can have, that's a whole other conversation, but it, it's pretty high risk in most people's eyes. So that's a gamble, but the people who are like 35, 40, you get a pretty well-paying job when you're young and you just kind of continue to progress through it. And if you're saving as much as you can or investing rather, rather than saving, if you're investing, you know, more than half of the income that you make, it, there's a pretty good chance that by the time you're like 35 or 40, you can have enough to retire. Cause most people think you need $20 million to retire, but you don't really need that much money. Like you need a lot of money to like support a family and stuff. But if you're just folk, if you're just thinking about like retirement, you can take however much you want to spend a year and divide it by like 0.03 or 0.04, get a number. So two, $3 million, you can retire with 80 to $120,000 per year of like a salary. That's pretty good. <laughs> like I had, nobody would be complaining about that. So I think a lot of it is just like, if you're 30, I don't want to say it's lucky. It's a lot of like hustle, hard work, like blood, sweat, tears type of stuff. If you're more closer to the 40 thing, it's just being very diligent, you know, making sure that you are constantly investing money, making sure that you're saving money, not overspending on things. Then also they talk about, um, asset allocation being very important. Like I know probably between the three of us, we're probably like 90% stocks, 5% cash, 5%, et cetera. <laughs> I don't know what your investing style is. I'm just making an assumption, like a young 20 year old, like probably where it's at, but Investment allocation, especially now with like interest rates changing and fixed income products being more, uh, more appealing, the uh, asset allocation is very, very important when you're trying to build wealth over the long term. Like getting from 5K to 100K, maybe a little more risky. Getting from 100K to a million, a lot of it has to do with like, am I overexposed? Am I taking on too much risk? Because that's kind of like the widow maker. Interesting. So I know it's like a lot of people have the mentality of, oh, they. I don't know the exact number, but like. This percentage of hedge funds can't even beat the market. So if there's these experts that are putting all this time and research into coming up with the perfect investment strategy and they're not even bidding the S&P, there's a lot of people like, oh, why should I even invest in like certain stocks and not put all my money in the S&P, right? What would you say to those people or how would you kind of think about that? I have no issues. Like for most people, honestly, I don't even try to like get them to think about trading or like being more active. Like for 90% of people, I think it's more important that you are investing rather than just like sitting on the sidelines because you're too scared or don't want to like learn all this stuff, right? So if you don't care about any of it, like not, this isn't for everyone. If you don't care about being more active and like managing your stuff, just put however, you know, put your money into the S&P 500, pick a low cost ETF, don't do mutual fund, buy some bonds and then you're, you're set. You know, you can choose the percent how you want, depending on how risky you want to be. You could be 60, 40, 80, 20, whatever. Uh, for those who are more interested, I'd say that like, you're not going to quadruple the S&P returns every year. Like if the S&P returns 10%, you're not going to get 40%, 50%. But it is possible if you are, again, like very diligent uh, and kind of mechanical with how you trade, it is possible for you to, you know, beat the market by a few percent. Uh, or it's an opportunity for you to decrease some of the volatility that, you know, you may have seen last year, right? Like if you were in the S&P or the NASDAQ, you lost 20% last year, 20% uh, of like paper money type thing. But if you, you know, were selling puts or selling calls or something like, yeah, you didn't win last year, but you could have at least 
you know, maybe lost 15% versus 20%. And it takes a lot less to go from 15 to zero than it does from 20 to zero. There's like the, it's like asymmetric payoffs. I don't know if you guys have ever seen, there's like visuals where you can see you lose 10%, you need 11% to make it back up. You lose 20%, you need 24, 25, whatever percent to make it back up. And that number, the more you lose, like the greater in magnitude your gain has to be to recover. So. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. So go ahead. I guess, um, what kinds of advice, I guess, just outside of investing in terms of people who are graduating college, do you have any advice from like budgeting or just personal wealth management that you think kind of goes under the radar a little bit, anything that's helped you or you've seen help others? So I have, uh, I use different credit cards for different things. So I have like one that's just for like food and like restaurants. So you can like obviously max out on points, but also it helps you keep track of your budget. So it's like, oh man, this credit card bill was 400 this month. Was that what I was expecting? Is that what I was not expecting? Like I would say like play around for a month, your first few months, just to kind of get an idea of what you want to do, what you don't want to do. Because if you make a hard budget at first, I feel like a lot of people fail because they set the bar so low. They're like, I'm going to spend $50 a week on groceries and eating out. Like, okay, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> so, so like building the budget as you go is in, was important. Uh, and another thing is like, I don't think it's anything novel, but trying to automate as much as you can is going to make your life so much easier. Like if you have like 401k matching, that stuff gets pulled out of your uh, income before like before your pay, before you even get it. If you can kind of replicate that on your own, where every month, if you get your check on the 15th and the 30th, on the 15th, pull $1,000 from your check into a investment account, right? So at the end of the day, you know how much is in your checkings. If you don't see that $1,000, you're not going to think to spend it. You know, most of the time you're not going to be like, oh man, I wish I had that $1,000 to go buy whatever, to go to the club. Like, it goes elsewhere. So if you can like try to automate as much of that as possible, you're less likely to overspend. Like I've, I have some friends who they, you know, they match their 401k. That's cool. But every penny that hits the checking account is going to be spent whether they need it or not. Yeah. Well, I think you've given us a lot of great things. Um, I really appreciate you for coming on. Uh, you've been someone I looked up to for a really long time. And so it's, Good to uh, catch up and talk about all the things you're doing. Um, a lot of cool stuff. Oh, yeah. Even, even I guess, outside of just like the personal finance, is there anything you wish you knew sooner or anything that if you could go back to your 20-year-old self you would do differently or wish you understood sooner about life? Wish I understood sooner about life. Oh, that's tough. <laughs> I'll, I'll, give, I'll keep like relatively brief. I'll give you two. Um, one of them at that time, I was like already learning technical skills, but I remember like my senior year of college, the professor asked all the finance students, like, what is one thing that you regret about college? And it was that I didn't learn how to program or I didn't learn the basics of programming like earlier. It's never too late, but that makes you such an invaluable asset to any firm. It makes it a lot easier to move around. Um, and you're just, you're worth more. Uh, it's just good to know as well. It's kind of interesting on a personal note, like keeping up with relationships. This is something that's really easy in college. But once you graduate college, this is something that I wish I told my, you know, I wish I knew when I was a sophomore or a junior, but keeping up with friends is like a part-time job. Like you need to put forth so much more effort once you're an adult versus when you're a student. So make sure that you actually do put forth the effort. Otherwise you'll be, you know, you'll realize you're 28 or you're 30 or something. And you only have a couple of like work friends and like your significant other. So I, I, I've seen it happen to people. So you just have to put in the effort, but it is definitely worth it. That's like the greatest, uh, the greatest return, kind of the greatest uh, risk return type of trade right there is like stay in touch with your friends and like you'll reap the benefits for years to come more than any money can give. 
Wow. Oh, yeah, Jim. Definitely. Well, Delphi, say you then. Yeah, so awesome. I see Well, Eddie, thank you for having me Thanks on. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Yep. Take care, dude. All right. We'll talk to you later. All right. All right see ya.